Welcome to Acquisitions Anonymous. Michael Girdley here. We have a special episode for you today. Uh, this is a republishing, a reprise of our most popular episode uh, out of our first hundred, uh, which is one we did with Joe Cassandra way back, nearly a hundred episodes ago, uh, titled "How One Tweet Led to a Business Acquisition," uh, and it has gotten about three times what our normal episodes would get. So. Uh, very popular one, bringing it back again today. And here is the episode. I hope you enjoy it. This episode is sponsored by Acquisition Lab. Acquisition Lab, created by Walker Diebel, author of Buy Then Build, How to Outsmart the Startup Game, is an accelerator with a highly vetted cohort-based educational and support community for people serious about buying a business. After going through the lab's month-long intensive, you have ongoing access to almost daily Q&A sessions with advisors, regular live deal review forums with Walker, handpicked vendors for your deal team, and a very active Slack group with other searchers on this path. Our team personally understands how to buy a business and will help navigate all the complexities of the process, as well as provide a trusted framework, tools, and resources to support you from search to close. The Acquisition Lab recently celebrated its 70th business being acquired and well over $100 million in aggregate transaction value. The lab is here to stand by your side so you can take the right action at the right time and avoid wasting countless hours trying to go it alone. For more information, check out acquisitionlab.com. Link is in our show notes or email the lab's director, Chelsea Wood, at chelsea at buythenbuild.com. All right. Welcome to Acquisitions Anonymous. I am one of your co-hosts, Michael Gridley. Uh, we are back this week with another episode of our War Stories uh, format. Uh, and that is where we bring on somebody that we think has experienced some cool stuff and is thinking about it in a neat way uh, and tells us what they learned uh, from those experiences. So uh, ideally, this is meant to be really relevant to folks that are buying, selling, operating businesses. Uh, and today we have a great guest. Me and my co-host, Bill D'Alessandro, are happy to welcome uh, Joe Cassandra, uh, who is here today. And Joe, we're just so excited for you to be with us. Yeah, I'm super excited. I love following both of you and yeah, looking forward to it. Cool. Well, excited to learn from you today and, and learn from your experience. Uh, before we kind of dive into the two topics we want to run with you with, um, why don't you take about a minute, introduce yourself and tell us how, you know, tell us what you do and how you got to where you are today. Yeah. So I, I grew up, I, I wanted to be an accountant and that's what I always wanted to do since seventh grade. All the kids thought I was weird and I got through college uh, realized pretty much day one at my first accounting job, it wasn't for me and <laughs> spent the next few years trying to f figure out what I wanted to do. And, uh, after failing at a few small things, I realized, Hey, marketing is what I really love doing. And, uh, so I started, uh, picking up some clients in the marketing arena and then 2016 quit my job, went full-time in that. Uh, and then, from there, I guess, fast forwarding, it went really well. I uh, uh, started a real estate company with my wife. Uh, one of my clients that I had for many years wanted me to come on uh, to do to help them with their marketing. And so I came on in 2019 um, as an executive. We forexed uh, the business in two years and then we sold it last year. And then last year, uh, my wife and I bought a business on, on a whim, which is what we're going to dive into a little bit today. And so, uh, so we're involved in four different businesses, got four kids married, uh, in Georgia. So it's, uh, it, it's pretty busy in, in our house. That's awesome. 
That's awesome. Well, cool. Well, so yeah, this this goes to the two topics we want to talk to you about today. Number one, going through the story of buying a business on a whim and and how that's turned out and what you've learned from that. And then number two, which we're going to dig into later, you know, you're starting to become a hold co, and we want to dig into your thinking about that and your vision for where you're going. But you know, let's let's start with this this first topic of the the business you bought on a whim. And if it's okay, I want to read the tweet uh, that inspired me to reach out to you. Uh, and you, this is basically the story. And you, you wrote how we bought a business in 2021, uh, a favorite account of mine, Real Estate Trent, so it's at Real Estate Trent on Twitter, posted about there are still deals on LoopNet. You got on LoopNet five minutes later, you found an amazing deal, you called the seller and you bought it 40 days later. Uh, and since then you've dealt with a bunch of stuff. So like walk us through each of those steps. So you're 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 set in life at this point. You've to some extent stole your business, you're looking for your next thing. Uh, and then you see this tweet from Real Estate Trent, like, so what what happens what happens at that point and how does the story start? Yeah, so uh, so in 2020, my wife and I were doing a lot of real estate stuff and went really well. And in 2021, um, I mean, if you're listening and at this point, I mean, the market was still going up really hot in 2021, still going up in 2022, and so we couldn't find any real estate opportunities. And so I'm. I get itchy trying wanting to get involved and get my hands dirty. And so when I saw uh when I saw uh, the strip mall guy post that, I went on LoopNet. I'd been on LoopNet before, but I didn't know, hey, you could buy businesses on it. That was just like a little tab there. If you go to loopnet.com, there's a little tab there. And it aggregates for biz buy sell, but I'd never been on there either. And uh just started browsing and uh saw that there was a a business that my wife and I go to, we shop in, because uh, it's a children's retail store. And so we've been to it many times. It's literally right down the street from us. Uh, it was selling at a crazy cheap valuation. And so kind of on <laughs> kind of on a whim, I call the seller, get her to agree to an LOI, and then tell my wife, hey, are you, got, <laughs> are you interested in doing this? And, uh, and then, yeah, just within 40 days, we were... Uh, figuring out how to do due diligence or anything. There were no lawyers involved. So it was really, I was trying to figure stuff out on the fly, how to do due diligence on this, um, on this yeah. business. And so, so um, it's a brick and mortar yeah. store. So how did, um, how did you know, that, so. how did you know when you saw the business on loop that, how did you know it was, you said it was ridiculously uh, priced in your favor? Like, how did you know that? Like what, 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 what was your analysis when you first saw the business? So when an, in in real estate, you can like look at comps based off of other homes that are for sale. I kind of did the same thing when I when I was uh, looking at this business. What I did was I went and looked at what other businesses in the state or even out of state, what kind of what are they selling at in terms of valuations and stuff like that. And I mean, a lot of them you're they're they're selling at one uh, X revenue or they're selling at three X EBITDA or something like that. And I'm not allowed to disclose the price what I bought it for, but basically we were buying it for 0.75 of EBITDA pre COVID. And so what happened with her business, and this is what I tell people right now, a lot of small business owners are burnt out from COVID and that's what kind of we ran into and they just want to sell their business really quick. And uh, so that's how I kind of came to that. I, I was able to look at pre COVID numbers um, after I talked with her and then realized that uh, once we kind of get over that COVID hump, that this was going to get back to good numbers. So you gambled on the fact that the business was going to come out of COVID, essentially. You had had belief that retail was coming back. 
Yeah, based off of based off of studying the retail trends. I mean, this is mid 2021. This isn't 2020. So 2020, yeah, it's a little bit more. I felt more would be more of a gamble, but this is I mean, this is 2021. Things were opening up. I'm in a very red state, so I see all the foot traffic that goes on around us and people were still out there buying. People were still uh uh going in stores and stuff, and that was I was taking that and also looking at what the economy in general was doing, what kind of stats they were seeing in the retail sales. And I mean, 2021 for in-store retail sales was really strong, uh, while some e-commerce people, uh, they struggled a little bit more compared to 2020. And so that was kind of uh, where I saw the opportunity for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, being an e-commerce guy, right? Um, 2020 was bonkers for e-com, like rocket ship, right? Nobody bought a thing in yeah. stores or ever left their house. And then you started lapping in 2021, yeah. some extremely robust comps, right? Um, and so we saw, I saw yeah. talking to e-commerce people, a lot of flatness kind of year over year, 2020, 2021, which was still great because we were still up huge from first 2019. Um, but the retail just exploded back in 21. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we saw the same thing, right? Right when we right when we opened shop August 1st, uh, sales were coming in. And I mean, they they were pretty strong all through November, essentially. I mean, some of the months were the, the business is seven years old and we were having record months compared to the last seven years that they'd had. Like November was a record November compared to all the six Novembers before that. October was a record October for all the Octobers before that. And that's part of Part of the economy coming back, part of some of the stuff that we did once we kind of took over. And uh, so, we're, yeah, we're seeing strong sales. We're still seeing, I mean, this, we're recording this March 15, 2022. This, I mean, we're having a super strong March right now. Uh, so, I mean, we're seeing that trend still going. People are still going in store. So it, it sounds like your your first step was you found a business you knew well and you actually loved, which was great. And you have four kids. So you yeah. it was your, in your wheelhouse. It was near your house. So that that had a, a lot of positive to it. And, it. and then you did kind of, those are kind of the qualitative things, right? And then you also thought from a macro standpoint, the economy's coming back and, you know, this business is going to be poised, poised to do well being in, in Georgia, Right, um, where you're more likely to be open than closed. Um, what? And then you did like a, it sounds like a rough back of the envelope valuation of the business. Like, how did you go through kind of doing the next step of like evaluating the business in terms of return on investment and you know mitigating risk and all that kind of stuff? What were your next steps after you after you called the owner at that point? So after we called her and we got her to. Agree. We we met went and met her for lunch. She walked us around uh, the retail store a little bit, explained kind of what was going on, um, and then she sent over the numbers uh, for the financials pretty quickly. And I, as an accounting background, I was I was able to read them pretty easily. I can do that myself. And uh, from there, I mean, because she wanted a quick close, and that's why we're getting it also at a great valuation. Because we were coming with cash. We weren't trying to get an SBA loan or anything like that. We were coming with cash that we had gotten basically from all of our properties that we bought in 2020. And we got money back from, we were then able to push that back into uh, the business. And so from there, it was, I mean, we only had, like I say in the tweet, we only had 40 days of due diligence. So we were... uh, we were looking at the financials. We we're also looking at what's in inventory and then what do we need to buy going forward. But I mean, I knew based off of when we bought it that we were going to get our money back uh, from purchase within a year, two years tops. 
so, I mean, that's a pretty, that, that's one of those investments where there's, there's like lower risk, but much higher returns in the end. And those are the kind of investments that I like. I'm not looking to, to go super high risk in, in any which way, especially uh, when just starting out in the physical yeah. space. So a very much an asymmetric bet, right? Like your downside was very capped, but your upside was was pretty high. Yeah, so exactly. you, you mentioned you bought the yeah. business for three quarters times EBITDA. So in theory, if everything goes super well, um, you know, excluding kind of inventory costs and stuff like that, you could have gotten your entire investment back in nine months, a year. Like it, it's, I mean, you, you kind of spread it out a little bit, but yeah, that if- Three, three quarters of earnings is three quarters of a year to like pay yourself back for your investment there. So, so is that kind of your analysis? You're like, okay, well, this is so cheap and there's not a lot of downside risk. Like, I don't even need to build a financial model. Or did you go and build a financial model? No, I didn't build any financial models. I knew, yeah, technically, yes, I could get money back in nine months. But I knew number one, we were going to make mistakes. So we were going to buy bad inventory, we're going to make bad uh, advertising investments. I don't know, all the unknowns that you don't know about. I mean, I built those in, basically. And so I figured, hey, even if we even if we don't get our money back for one extra year, we're still going to do fine because we have so much, there's so much potential um, with the brand and with the opportunity just in this specific children's space, there's so much opportunity that even though we know we're going to make mistakes the first 12 months, it's all going to pan out in the end as we make those investments uh, for the over the next five years. Yeah. And so then did you have to pay EBITDA 0.75 times EBITDA for the business plus the value of the inventory? Or did she just throw that in for free? No, it was all it was all in there. Um, she did have inventory pretty low because she's been trying to get out of the business, and so she's obviously not investing in the business. And so her business sales were pretty much going like this from 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020. And so I knew what was going on was she's not investing in inventory. So in retail, you. If you don't have a full store, you're making less sales, essentially. And that's what she was doing. She was pretty much running like a skeleton crew store of the bare bones of the inventory that she could put on there. I knew if we can go in there, double the inventory, get online sales, because there's no online store at the time. There's zero. Um, and then make strategic advertising and partnerships. I knew we could easily then pump that right up. And I mean, we're what are we eight months in? And it, I mean, it's, that's already proven correct in, in every way. So I got to imagine for a retail store, like, I mean, if you paid less than one times EBITDA and inventory was included, I mean, you practically got the business for the value of the inventory almost, I would think. So was the value here mostly, uh, it's funny, like, like I said, e-com guy, not physical retail guy, but the value here mostly is like the lease and the sign pretty much. Right. And then you go, I've got a lease, I got a location and a sign. And if I fill the shelves, then I'll sell more just based on the people that come in. And then if I drive more traffic, I can sell even more than that. I mean, is that the basic calculus here? Yeah. So that's a, that's a good point, Bill. So where we live, we live in a very fast growing town. So 15 years ago, this town was empty, essentially. And now, they're building about five different neighborhoods with all houses that are 600 grand and up. I mean, that's all builders can build right now anyway. And so they're building all of that within a one in a mile uh, 
a mile and a half radius from here. I also knew that because uh, we're like on a corner pretty much. So we're kind of tucked in a corner of it. But I knew um, and, and I recommend people always read your local paper because you're always going to find these little tidbits. I knew that the big store in front of us was going out of business or they're moving. So they're going to tear that all down and create more parking, more more attractions and stuff like that. So that's going to draw even more foot traffic to our area. So those were all macro local economic things that I knew uh, was coming in. So yes, there was a bet on the location as well, for sure. So you you close on the business 40 days later, uh, like you're, you're de-risking it the hell out of it because it's cheap and you feel like you have inside information and that that's wonderful. Those are two, two, two great ways to de-risk something. So now you own a children's boutique in your town. Uh, what happens next? Like sure, surely not everything went perfect from there. No, of course not. We make plenty of mistakes. Yeah, tell us so, about it. That's what these war um, stories are all about. <laughs> so, uh, so a few of the mistakes. So, um, one of the one of the things she hid from us was so so she she is a she owns a couple brands. She owns a couple stores um, of different brands. So she sold just this brand and then has other stores uh, for women's clothes and for jewelry and stuff like that. And what I found out later was she rolls all those up into a hold co, I guess you could say. And she passes some of those expenses onto the whole, she puts them on the hold co PNL and doesn't trickle them down to the, to the PNL. So I found some of those, uh, hidden expenses that I'm paying for, um, a little bit. So, uh, that was something that she hid from us. So just, um, just to pause then, there. So why, why do you think you didn't find that in diligence? Was that just because because she she wouldn't show us the PNL of her hold co? She would only show us the PNL of the store. Uh huh. So, what kind of expenses was that she rolling sense. up? Like she had consolidated utility bills or shipping shipping contracts or yeah, utility bills, um, some of the taxes like an inventory are rolled up in there. Um, some of the inventory, uh, like. I put them under cost of goods sold, like the bags that you'd put um, items into and stuff like that. Some of those she would buy in bulk for all of her brands, and so she would put them all on just one PNL. And so, uh, so those were all. That was a uh, that was one mistake, obviously. Um, another one we made was, and this is I went into like I said I went into this knowing that I was going to make these mistakes, and so uh, I was going to make mistakes that cost money, and so. Uh, we we decided, okay, let's try every advertising avenue we can at once and see what sticks. And so, um, because I'm an online marketer person, so physical physical marketing is a whole different ballgame. And so, I'm trying uh, school sponsorships, uh, sponsoring the uh, theater, newspaper ads, you know, every which one you can think. I'm just throwing it all at the wall to see what sticks. And... What you find is that the ROI on a lot of those can be pretty much zero at some point. And, uh, and so we figured that out pretty quickly. Um, and then what I also found with advertising online, and this is what I always tell people, make sure if you're going to advertise online that you have a specific call to action so you can track what you're doing. So um, if it's very vague, the call to action, or you're not able to track the metrics, you could just be throwing money at Facebook and not know if you're getting any of it back. And so we made some of those mistakes as well. Um, 
And then right when we hot, right when we open the store, pretty much every employee, every employee comes to us and says, she's been underpaying us for years. We demand a raise or we're leaving. <laughs> and so we had to raise all the pay. By, um, by, but we have by a great staff. I, lo- I, lo- was I it love a lot? It was a lot. It was a, uh, let's see. So some of them were making 11 an hour. And so I had to bump them to 15. And then the manager who we love, she's an amazing manager. She was making 15 and now she's making 23. Um, so that, so those are big bumps for them, but I've seen it pay off because they're much more loyal. They're much more enjoy being there. A part of a boutique experience is you need employees that are willing to work with customers. It's not Walmart where people are just walking around aimlessly. They want that experience with the with the workers, and so um, it's it's paid off for us. So even though our payroll's decently higher, I would say 20 percent higher than what she used to pay the seller, um, we're seeing the sales come in and help with that a little bit. What uh, and maybe this is a dumb question, but I remember when I was like a teenager, I would go to the Gap, and everybody, all the salespeople, would argue about like who who got credit for my sale. You know, they'd like walk me up to the register and do this. Like, are there any? Have there been any things where you've done that with the staff, where it's like, okay, well, like we're gonna do this type of bonus deal if you reach this amount of sales for the day, or any sort of individual kind of alignment of interest there, rather than just you raising their salaries? Yeah, yeah. So there, there's a couple things where. Uh, we're, we do right now that we immediately uh, implemented. So, um, number one, if they if we hit uh, uh, our goal for the month in revenue, everyone gets a bonus in their next paycheck, and we've done that four times, I believe, since we've uh, since we've uh, bought the store. Um, at cert, one of our one of our biggest attractions is we do events. And so when they, like we have an event coming up uh, next week. And so they'll get a special bonus on top of that just for working it because it's a very stressful day for them. And so they get a bonus on top of that. Um, I also added, uh, so PTO days. So if someone's a full-time worker, they can get two weeks paid off, uh, two weeks paid off. And then on top of that, every year that you've worked there, uh, you get an extra day as well. So we have some of our our girls, they've worked there for three years. They've never had any paid time off or anything. And now suddenly they come, we come in and now they have two or three days paid off. Our manager has almost three weeks of paid off vacation or paid time off. And so those are little things to kind of keep, uh, keep people knowing that we, we care about them and that we're looking out for them because they, they didn't really come from that experience before, but then also to help retain them a little bit because, uh, if we can keep, say, like our manager around much longer than what she was originally planning to, that makes it easier for us to work on the business instead of having to go in and be involved in the business much, much more in the day to day. Yeah, dig it. So, um, and you don't disclose this if you don't want to, but could you just give us an idea of the order of the magnitude of like, like the business it, revenue, profitability, investment, all that kind of stuff. I assume you didn't buy the real estate. Like what order magnitude kind of numbers are we talking here? Is it a million dollar a year grossing business? Is it 200,000 a year? Like how, how, how big is all a kind of what's going on with this particular, particular boutique? So this year we'll, we'll do just in store. We'll probably do about 600,000 and the margins on it uh, are usually between 
15% to 17% or so, uh, depending on how much, um, how much inventory goes up because inventory fluctuates all the time, uh, depending on, uh, how much it costs us and what you're, you're talking uh, net there. So that's or you're talking gross that, margins on the, the items. I'm sure the gross margins on the higher got to be a lot higher. Yeah. yeah gross margins. Uh, if you're just counting inventory, I like to include bags in there and stuff like that because you always that's involved in every sale. But if we're just looking at inventory, uh, so when we, when we buy a piece, what we try and do is get at least 58% um, margin on it. That's that's like the hope, usually. Some of our gift items, you're going to get a lot higher. Jewelry is going to be a lot higher than that. But a piece of clothing, which is the best seller's. Uh, we try and get that 58 to 60%. And just this year, we've had to raise prices, obviously, because of inflation and stuff's higher and we haven't seen any pushback on it. Um, but obviously, once you start discounting stuff, that's when you start dipping below that. And uh that's one of the that's one of the reasons why her gross margins when we bought it were much lower because she wasn't changing prices. She's had some of the prices have been the same for three years or something, even though costs have been going up. And so that's our that's our in store. And then in the next month or so, um, we're in transition. We're going to open our online store, and um, that should add a nice decent chunk to our business. Yes. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you're. Just kind of putting the numbers together, going to make high five figures um, from this this year, hopefully, and 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 hopefully more in the future as you kind of grow it. What what amount of time are you spending? Say, what percentage of your focus? And is your wife running the business, or are you running the business? Like, how are you guys actually like CEOing this particular boutique? Yeah, so my wife and I we split we're split fifty fifty. So what she's involved in, she's involved in a lot of the buying, like what styles are in and stuff like that. She'll also uh, work on the events with the staff and whatnot. My role is more back end, I guess you could say. So I work on any marketing pushes that we have, um, the email marketing. Um, I also obviously do the finances and and watch the margins and stuff like that. And then on top of that, I'm also any sort of like right now we're changing our POS system so that our POS in store can sync to our online store that we're opening. And so I'm in, that's kind of my thing. So I handle all those pieces. So in terms of day to day, that's not the, our in store manager is uh, taking care of those, a lot of that, which takes a lot of it off our plate, which is also why we also, why we want to keep her happy and pay her well and all that. So she, she kind of takes a, care of all that stuff while we're trying to grow the business uh from the back end that's great i have one more question but before we leave this topic bill do you have any have any questions no keep it rolling cool so one one final question then i'd love to get on to the hold coast stuff um you know what what advice would you have for anybody looking to replicate your journey like based on what you've seen and what you see people making mistakes potentially that should be doing what you're doing like what advice would you have for for listeners around that I mean, see, I, I came in because I had other business ventures that were, I was able to then take that money and invest it into another business. And so I like that route that I was able to kind of profit to invest somewhere else. I know someone starting from scratch that doesn't have money to invest in a business. It's going to be a little bit harder uh, to secure that, uh, to secure that funding. But I mean, 
I mean, in ter- in terms of buying a business, I mean, I'm still new at it. So, I mean, I, I make a lot of mistakes on it. But I would say uh, at least make sure you know your numbers pretty well up front. <clears throat> and then uh, treating our staff well is, has helped a lot. And so, I mean, a lot of people, they want to come in and they start cutting expenses right away. But right when we started, we needed the loyalty of the staff to help us because this is a whole new this was a whole new venture for us. We needed them to teach us like how this business runs. And so, I mean, I guess you could say it comes down to the people and you got to take care of them for sure. Even if it costs you a little bit up front. I think you gotta, that's... You got to take care of them. That's so huge. I mean, one of the things we try to do, if at all possible, if you can come in on day one and say, hi, I'm the new owner, you're all getting a raise, that will go so far. And so much, even if it's That's nominal, exactly what we did, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It, I yeah. mean, I think the other thing I heard from you is, you know, you look back at what the success is for every single private equity deal. And this was a micro private equity deal. Like the number one determining factor is the price you pay like every single time, like, and you can pay, you can overpay, you can underpay. Um, and then what you do execution is great, but the determining factor, you just got to buy it right. That's, that's so impressive. So, um, kudos to you. Thanks for sharing that. You know, hopefully that's inspiring to other folks. So we're going to do a word from our sponsor right now. So in our never ending quest to have our, uh, podcast break, even, uh, we'll cut to a, uh, a sponsor live read here. And then when we come back, we're going to talk to Joe about how he's building his own personal holding company. Uh, because that is hot on the internet right now. And we want to understand how he's thinking about it and what we can learn from what he's doing. All right. Welcome, everybody, to a fun little snippet that we're doing. Uh, this is Mill Snell, one of the co-hosts for Acquisitions Anonymous. And uh, we have a use case to talk about today. I'm joined by Dylan Scroggins from Fleetio. Dylan, how's it going, man? Mill's doing well. How are you? Good, good. Dylan and I met through SMB Twitter. And uh, like a typical uh, SaaS guy, he uh, he hooked me, and I'm on a I'm on a recurring m- monthly membership right now for Fleetio. Yes, I love it. Dylan, tell us about Fleetio and what it is you guys do. Yeah, so Fleetio is a fleet management software that helps organizations track, analyze, and improve their fleet operations. What does that mean? All those pen and paper and Excel sheets you have for inspection reports, maintenance, work orders can now be uploaded in a cloud-based platform and a mobile app. All right, Dylan, you got some questions for me. Aquaseal, the roofing company that I own, we are a Fleetio user. So uh, fire away uh, and don't don't hold back. Don't hold anything. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. You don't hold back either. Um, my kind of main question was just what pains did you have besides an annoying SaaS sales guy blowing you up on Twitter? For the record, <laughs> I didn't blow you up too much. Um, but, uh, you know, I was just curious. I'm always um, interested to hear what pains did you have, whether you knew them or not knew them, um, that caused you to even consider a uh, move to a uh, fleet management software? Yeah. So Aquaseal, we have about 50 pickup trucks and then a handful of other, you know, rolling stock, telehandlers, forklifts, dump truck, semi, those kind of things. And we were tracking every, I, I say tracking in air quotes, because I don't know that we were really tracking anything. We had paper notebooks, you know, we did, you know, twice annual vehicle inspections and tried to make sure we had mileage updated. We use fuel cards, but, you know, not, not a lot of, uh, not, not a lot of seamlessness between the different functions. And we were, you know, basically whenever a truck had a problem, we have, we have in-house maintenance, which I know Fleetio works both ways, but you know, anytime a truck had a problem, we take it to our mechanic. He would try and do as much repair as he could, as fast as he could and get that truck and that crew back out on the road. 
but we really didn't have any analytics about, you know, what's the cost per mile? What's the, you know, what's the fuel efficiency per mile that we're getting on this truck? How are we making sure that we stay on top of, you know, inspections and turnaround repairs quickly? So we had just a, a kind of a rat's nest of, uh, you know, of a fleet situation. And we were just just through sheer grit trying to push it forward. All right, Dylan. Well, man, thanks for thanks for being here and being willing to chat about this and really appreciate appreciate Fleetio uh, sponsoring the podcast and being able to do this kind of in-depth combo. Yeah, no, we appreciate it. And, you know, Fleetio, we are doubling down the S&B space, anything, pest control, construction, HVAC, whatever. Um, we're all about it. So anything less than 100 vehicles or even over 100 vehicles, we have a mid-market space as well. But we're across all industries and actually in 80 different countries. So for all your global uh, Acquisitions Anonymous listeners, tell them to uh, give us a ring. And, you know, if they mention this podcast, we'll uh, see what we can do for them. Awesome. Thanks, Dylan. Awesome. Thanks, Mills. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd love to hear. So, um, Joe, if you could just kind of, so how does the retail store and the, and the online stuff fit into your whole co strategy? So pretty much what we want to end up doing is, so we have our, our brand here and then figure out what other brands that can complement it essentially. So is there, um, is there jewelry? Is there other small retailers that we can take over that can uh, feed into it in some way. I mean, we even looked at, we even looked at like a, a daycare or something like that to kind of feed customers or a dance studio or something like that. Um, but the, the main thing is, so in a boutique, a lot of vendors that you buy close to them, they're really small. They're not huge vendors. A lot of them are hand to mouth. And so if at some point we can acquire them so that we're then, essentially, I guess, a manufacturer of our clothing, essentially, then we're going to drastically see our margins go way up, which is then able to um, expand. Our init- our goal is to, uh, is to, at some point, expand physically. And that was the goal this year until uh, a lot of, I don't know, kind of worried about a recession a little bit. So that's why we kind of pivoted to more going online first. It's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit less risky to kind of do that as we kind of wait and see how the economy is going to shake out. But um, yeah, so it's acquiring some of those smaller brands that we can then have higher margins on and then expand physically um, into different places. So straight up vertical integration, a classic. Vertical, yeah. <laughs> it's much easier that way. So. And so how does how does this fit into, you, you mentioned you're involved in four businesses now. Could you paint the picture of how those all fit together or maybe they don't uh, and how you spend your time across those? Well, I mean, we have our real estate company. It's mostly, it's all single family homes. Eventually we want to graduate into commercial. So if at some point we're able to buy the real estate and a and a retailer at the same time. I mean, we definitely open to that. There's not too many. I mean, you won't find very many of those opportunities anywhere. But um, hopefully at some point, we'll be able to buy the real estate that we're in. Right after we closed on uh, on, on this business, I asked the property manager, how do I buy this whole building? <laughs> but he said, it, he said it wasn't for sale. I mean, it's a lot of built. It's a lot of stores in it. But um, You know what I love about you, Joe? I'd love to own the underlying you real are estate. Fearless. You are fearless. <laughs> Is freaking awesome. You know, you're just like the you're just like the guy that walks into the bar and you're just like, I'm gonna talk to every girl here or whatever. It's just so it's just so cool. Just no, just go. It's so there neat. We go. 
Meanwhile, I'm in the corner yeah, like, it's... I'm really scared to talk to anyone. Anyway, continue. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, I'm, I'm actually I'm actually pretty... Uh, I, I like to take calculated bets is what I say. I'm not a huge... Uh, I don't think I take a lot of huge risks, I wouldn't say. So all of the real estate we've bought is all... I got it at a big discount. I mean, that's that's just... And that's because I marketed for it and off... off off uh off market and that's that's how i am i gotta i gotta find those uh good deals yeah so. dig it well, it's so one there's things, it, it's one of the things people really get wrong about entrepreneurship like they think entrepreneurship is these big like if this doesn't work out i'm going to be homeless kind of bets and reality is like there are lots of folks like you who are taking very small asymmetric calculated risks repeatedly and, and sometimes they don't work out but when they do like you're going to be in the situation you are right now where you're going to be getting 100 plus percent IRR for the next years um based on one year's investment in some sweat equity um and it can really pay off you just got to do some work and hustle to find the deals so um bill you're about to say something yeah. Well, yeah. So I, I'm interested in sort of the expanding uh, empire of Jeff. So there's retail store and then there's a single family real estate company. What are the other two? And then um, I have my marketing company, which I've had for seven years. Um, and then the company that we sold. Uh, so when I came aboard, I was an executive in it and I have profit sharing that I get from it every single month. and. Uh, we publish all in the financial space. We publish, we've created software, and now we've rolled up into, uh, well, since we were acquired, now we're, roll, we're being rolled up into a large hold co of publishing and software companies. And so that's, a, th that's where all my time is divested. So interesting. So how do you consolidate? You basically got four income streams here. Are they all yep. just owned? Are they kind of peers where they're just all owned by you directly? Or do you have a whole co so you can move capital between them? I think people are probably interested about in structuring. Yeah. So I am. So my wife and I, we own the real estate in the retail business 50 50. I own the marketing company. And then I'm a partner in the business that was acquired. So, um, so that would be outside of any hold co because I just have, I just get uh, profit sharing from it. But then the others are structured independently. I wouldn't say that I pass money between them very much. Um, unless, unless like one gets a windfall, like I said, with real estate, and then I pass it into investing in another business. Um, but in terms of day-to-day -day operations, there's not a lot of intermingling of that. Okay. And any shared services or shared employees or overhead, any of that? Um, I have, I'll, I'll have VAs kind of do work for all of them. Uh, so I, I'll have a couple VAs that I work with. Um, they'll kind of do some uh, research for one. They'll run some, crunch some numbers for another uh, and whatnot. But in terms of shared offices or anything like that, no, I wouldn't. None of that. And what is your vision as it grows? Because the real estate, the real estate portfolio is pretty passive. So I mean, it's just handed off to a property manager. Okay. And what's your vision as it grows? I mean, does it? Uh, you know, if you buy a brand, do you try to put that inside of the, you know, the same LLC that owns the retailer? Do you try to? Do you just continue splitting it fifty fifty with your wife or owning it directly until you're, you know, you've got just Joe at the top of the org chart and a million different direct <laughs> investments? You know, how do you think about yeah. layering it? <laughs> 
Yeah. So the retail and the retail um, uh, business is set up to be uh, a hold co. So it's not directly the the retail or the retail business that we bought is just a, a DBA of it. Essentially, it's just underneath it, so that we can then add more brands on top of it once we put it in. So it would all roll up to that to what the 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 business my wife and I own. So that's the that's the end goal is to all roll up under that one one LLC. So uh I mean I think I think I'm sure everybody listening has their own opinions on retail, right? You know, the future of the internet, the future of not the you know the epic tuck of war between the internet and bricks and mortar retail. Uh so I think that's a rather kind of tired topic. And rather than digging into that, uh, I wonder if it's more interesting to just ask what is it like to own a retailer? You know, the, a business where if you are not open, if there's not someone there to literally ring the register, you are not making money, right? You know, if someone calls out sick, you're behind the register. Uh, you know, a, a hurricane comes and, you know, a tree falls in front of your store, like all that stuff. You know, what's it like to actually own a retail store? It's the hardest part of owning a retail store is the the cash flow piece of it. Because you, every time you're you're getting a windfall to sell inventory, you then have to then start paying for the next inventory. So like we're buying inventory right now, not just for summer, but we're also buying it for fall at the same time. And so you got to plan ahead your your cash flow in that regard. And so that's a little bit tricky because you have Walmart. I mean, they have huge leverage with their vendors. They can do net 90 terms if they want to. When you're a smaller retailer, you don't have that kind of leverage. And so sometimes you're just, you have to pay for inventory when it ships and then it ships to you. And then it's sitting in, uh, it's sitting in our storage unit or it's sitting in the back or something like that. And that's one of the reasons why we're going online to be able to, um, get kind of that relief valve is how I like to explain it. It's, it's, it's a way to get stuff that's not out on the floor because there's no room or anything like that and be able to actually start pushing to get that money uh, coming in faster. Cause that's how you grow. You have to get that money coming in faster. If you're paying for inventory now, but you're not getting that dollar back in 60 to 90 for 60 or 90 days, it's really hard to then invest in something. And so um, in terms of the, the employee side of it, my motto with hiring people is I, I'm always going to, I'm never going to try and cut costs with our employees ever. It's never going to happen. I'm never going to cut their hours. I'm never going to cut anything. I actually try and I push them to go for more, uh, go for more hours or go or push to ask for more in raises and stuff when they reach certain milestones and whatnot. And so my manager will say, Hey, I just met this person, but I don't think I have enough room. Um, she's great, but I don't know if we have enough room on the staff. I say, just hire her. We will figure it out in this environment. You just got to, if you find a good person, you just got to run with it and you'll, fi- you'll, f- you'll figure it out later. And, uh, and so no, in retail, there's usually a lot of turnover, um, but we have a staff of about 10 and we haven't lost anyone. Everyone stays and everyone's excited to be there. And, uh, so when you say, Hey, you have to go and do the register. If someone calls out sick, it's like, no, we've, we've gotten enough people that they're all excited to be there, that they all work with each other. That that's never happened. I've never checked anyone out. My wife will only check people out if she's bored and wants to go hang out in the store for a little <laughs> bit, but we're not ever having to be that hands-on, uh, day-to-day people, which is, which is what we want so that we can focus on the big stuff. I, uh, 
I have a game that I play with my wife, which I think she doesn't think is very fun. But every time we are, <laughs> every time we are in a, you know, like independent mom pop owned retail store, I try to guess how many dollars in inventory they have sitting on the shelf. I like, I just look around oh, and I'm yeah. like, oh my God, the working capital <laughs> in this room right now. Oh, right. Yeah. You know, especially if you go into like one of those like really well done toy stores where it's just like floor to ceiling toys, like wall to wall to wall. And like, those are the best stores to shop in, like, like a really cool experience. But I just walk in, I'm like, oh my God, there are millions of dollars <laughs> right on these shelves. And how are they financing yeah. it? You know, this is their entire net worth, probably, right, is of the of the owner is sitting here right here on the shelves. Um, so, like I said, yeah. my wife thinks it's stupid, but I do. I torture her every time. Like how like how like you think this yeah. is 500,000 of toys or whatever or, or plants or whatever <laughs> store we're at? She's like, oh, my God, I'm divorcing you. <laughs> but it, it's it's so much it's so much fun, though, to to own it that because especially when you're in a in like our town now people know who we are they know like oh those are the people that own that store and we love going there the staff are so nice you put on great events and so you suddenly become a fabric of the community a little bit and uh yeah i mean it, it it's a lot different than doing like a service business a service business you're getting cash right away and all you're managing is contractors but uh i mean i i i do a little bit of i i kind of balance it a little bit and so I, I enjoy it. I think I think it's a lot of fun. Super cool. Good. Super good. Well, Joe, thanks for being here. You killed it. I really appreciate you talking about your journey to buy the business and how you're putting together a hold co. Um, so hopefully all the nerds that listen to this that want to get into the hold co can can see how you're approaching it. <laughs> and it's not as risky and crazy as sure. you think. You just get into one business and then you get into a second business and you get into a third business and maybe you keep going after that. Yeah. So uh, thanks again for yeah, being here. Great job. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys, for having me. I appreciate it.